Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice. Hello Australia, welcome to My Millennial Money, I'm Glenn James and today we're talking about China. Now, I've got Shell Johnson who is the host or one of the hosts of My Millennial Career joining me on the podcast. G'day Shell. Hey Glenn. Now, we're talking China today. What have we got in store? Well, we are interviewing Matt Bevan and I've got to say, Matt, thank you so much for joining us. We're so excited to have you on the show. No worries, delighted to be here. And Glenn, can I just tell you how I guess this has come about? So I have been obsessed with your podcast, Matt, like totally obsessed. And I was sharing it. At one point, we're in the like prime of the release date, every uh, episode getting released. I was sharing it with every person I could speak to, talk to. And so then Glenn and I were chatting. I'm like, we have to talk to Matt Bevan. We have to get him on the show. And here you are. So Matt Bevan is the brains behind the podcast uh, China if you're listening and we're about to go deep on China so strap in let's get it on all right I'm gonna start Matt your background politics history what led you to do this project uh, through the ABC in terms of the podcast and China well I mean I've been working at the ABC for for more than 10 years now. I started with local radio in Newcastle, uh, looking at basically just covering, you know, uh, local issues, fates, traffic, uh, events going on, what the Knights are up to, that kind of thing, uh, and then moved to Sydney. And from there, I was working in local radio in Sydney and uh, doing local Sydney issues, not paying much attention to the rest of the world at all. Uh, and then I got a job uh very fortunately, at Radio National, where my gig was talking, um, basically, it was distilling international news stories into short form versions that could be understood on the radio. And the thing was the timing, it, it, that happened in 2016. And a fair bit happened in 2016. Uh, you know, Brexit happened, Donald Trump uh, won the election. And gradually, the short little segments that I was doing on the radio were getting longer and longer and longer and longer and longer. And eventually I convinced the ABC to let me turn them into a podcast. And so we did three series about Donald Trump, uh, sorry, four series actually about Donald Trump. And then Donald Trump lost the election and we moved on to China. So basically my uh, skill. I don't. I don't. You know, have a lot of background in in the, in politics and history and that kind of thing. My my job is and my my skill set is in trying to take really big, complicated things. I spend a whole bunch of time learning about them, so that then I can summarize them in a way that people can understand it easily. And so, yeah, the latest project was China. I didn't know a whole much. I mean, I, I knew 
a bit about China, but not a huge amount. Uh, and then, yeah, so I spent six months making this podcast and uh, this is what came out. So, Matt, have you been to China? What's your exposure? No, no, I haven't been to no. China. Uh, I have been talking about China uh, basically daily in terms of uh, international news. Sure. Uh, but by the time we turned to doing this series, uh, basically it became impossible, well, for two reasons for me to go to China, one being uh, that the coronavirus pandemic was uh, ongoing and secondly because basically China has decided that people who work for the ABC can't come. Uh, they've kicked ABC reporters out of the country and so we did have to cover it from afar but we spoke to a whole bunch of people who are very deeply connected to China, who are in China, who are from China and uh, so that's how we got that perspective. But, you know, the the gig is explaining it to Australians and so the, the trick is making, is understanding something um, and then explaining it and so I haven't had to leave Newcastle in order to make this series about China. <laughs> I I found it fascinating because I went to China once, right? And it's a it's just a wild experience. Like, you know, in Australia we've got call it 27 million people in Australia. I went to Shanghai. Hmm. There's probably more people in Greater Shanghai. So, you know, we have to re- like it just blew my mind the size of everything. Yeah, yeah. It makes, I said to my friends, like I've been to America, it made America look like a kid's birthday party in terms of infrastructure. Like that's how wild it is. And I think one thing that I've loved about listening to the podcast has been exactly what you said, Matt, of you're taking really complex themes and issues that are live and making it easy for, you know, average person like me to understand and grasp what does that look like and why do I... Why should I know and why should I care? And I guess that goes to my next question. Why should someone care about the situation in China and the, I guess the d- diplomatic relationship between Australia and China? Well, up until fairly recently, you didn't really have to worry about it too much. Well, that was certainly the approach of most people. But, you know, last year we had a situation where China was unhappy with Australia's uh, for, with Australia for a number of different reasons. And they decided to express that unhappiness uh, by cutting off a number of our uh, – stopping importing basically a, a bunch of different Australian products, whether it was uh, coal, which is extremely relevant in certain parts of the country, or lobsters, or uh, uh, wine, barley, beef, a whole bunch of different things, China stopped importing it. And that was the moment that I think a lot of Australians went – whoa, we really sell a lot of stuff to China. Our economy is really built around selling stuff to this country and now they're cutting off a bunch of these things that they're now not buying from us and that's a kind of a big deal. So, yeah, that, that, that's why you should care about it. You should care about it because our economy is, uh, uh, the Australian economy is based around selling stuff to China and if they decide not to buy anything from us, then that would be a well, a, a really, really, really big problem. It's funny because I remember Kevin China Rudd. Um, that's all he could talk about when he was in office. Yeah, it, it's ironic in hindsight in that the Kevin Rudd years were not a particularly close time period for Australia and China. Australia and China's relationship really uh, came to its um, best 
point under Tony Abbott, who had no uh, Mandarin-speaking sp- skills or anything like that. Uh, he was the one who signed a free trade agreement between Australia and China and organised a whole bunch of, uh, you know, big uh, deals between the two countries. Uh, yeah, uh, Kevin Rudd's ability to speak Mandarin uh, made him a bit of a celebrity in China. He was very popular, but uh, didn't get a lot done government-wise. So on that, I remember actually when I was in in high school, a lot of the conversation was around is learning Mandarin something that we should actually have as part of our school system? And that was, you know, way back when I was in school. Should people, and someone has asked on their Facebook community, is Mandarin still a language we need to be learning for our career opportunities? What are your thoughts on that, Matt? Well, I mean, it's certainly more useful than French and German, which is what I was learning in in, uh, in high school. Um, look, or Latin, or Latin, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thankfully, they'd stopped doing that when I when I was going through high school. Um, but you know, though, the Australian uh, government has taken a, a number of different stabs at which uh, should be prioritised in the curriculum and. Uh, yeah, China, China, Mandarin was only sort of come across pretty late in the piece. Uh, but, I mean, by all means, learn it. But if you are a, a person without Chinese background who learns to speak Mandarin, uh, you are quite a rarity. Kevin Rudd is a very unusual entity in this country. The number of people who do not have a Chinese ethnic background who speak a Chinese language uh, is we're, we're talking about dozens of, of people. It's really, really tiny, um, which is, you know, a big failing. Uh, but having said that, Australia has a vibrant uh, and enormous uh, Chinese-Australian community. And so if you want someone to, uh, you know, to be in business who can speak uh, Mandarin, there's plenty of people around that you could employ. <laughs> And actually, it's reminded me one of the episodes I know you did on the podcast was about um, international students and how that community has been really disrupted through COVID. What's your take on international students coming back post-COVID? Is that something that's likely to occur or how will that industry be? And you probably shouldn't even say industry. Is that a terrible way to talk about it? I'm not sure. It's funny. Well, Matt, we we are selling education, aren't we, as an export? Yeah. I mean... Ish, I don't know. Uh, yeah, well, no, that is certainly the way that the, way that the government, government approaches it. One of the things that I sort of talked about in the way uh, in, in the podcast was there is a bit of a risk when we talk about it this way, where we, mm. when we say that it is, oh, yeah, education is our third biggest export and, you know, it's up there with coal and iron ore, then we're going to start sort of going, well, treating people like a commodity, which is not... Great, and you could make a strong argument that in a number of different ways, Australian society does look at international students as a source of money and not a source of opportunity to connect with the rest of the world and to uh, you know connect with different cultures and to enrich Australian culture. And so you you have all these stories of uh, Chinese students uh, in particular coming here being incredibly isolated, struggling to find work despite their uh, qualifications uh, and experiencing racism from Australians. And, you know, if we started looking at them more as, you know, 
people rather than as you know something like uh, where we that we list along alongside iron ore coal and lng then maybe that would that would um you know improve the situation a bit i hope so i, I try and avoid doing that yeah that's one of the things i try and avoid doing is talking about them as a commodity but then again you know it's there on the government issued charts so <laughs> it might just be me so who's trying to do that speaking of the government and this is i from a personal, just a guy living on the coast type vibe, I find this hard to reconcile that on like on one hand, the government is, we need China to sell our black gold to our wine, our education, all that stuff, as you said. But on the other hand, oh, we need a nuclear sub-alliance deal to protect this country from invading, blowing us up, you know, extreme scenario. So, how do we reconcile this relationship? Gee, it's well. That's that's really the you know one of the two big challenges of this century, really, uh, alongside uh, climate change, is how do you have a relationship with China as it expands and becomes uh, a dominant force in global in in you know global geopolitics. Um, one of the clues there is that you will not find the government t- saying specifically what these submarines are for. <laughs> yeah. I know, I'll say alleged. <laughs> yeah, alleged, uh, this alleged country. Uh, it, yeah, yeah, well, you know, this, the submarines could be for anything. Um, I mean, the, the other interesting thing about the submarine deal is that Australia's previous plan to replace our diesel electric submarine fleet with another diesel electric submarine fleet is the sort of thing you would do if your plan is to protect the waters between Indonesia and Australia because you don't need a nuclear-powered submarine to deal with that kind of area. What you need a nuclear-powered submarine for is to travel to the South China Sea, hang around there for a while, then come back. That's the thing that a diesel-electric submarine cannot do. They will run out of petrol. By the time it gets to the South China China Sea, it's just going to turn around and come home, whereas a nuclear submarine doesn't have to do that. So the fact that it's a nuclear submarine is a pretty good clue as to what it's for. Uh, that being said, the reason that we are buying the nuclear submarine and you don't have to delve too difficult into the too too deeply into the government's rhetoric to find this is because we want America to look after us and this is the best way of doing that is to build a really strong defense partnership with them. Um, have them share with us some of their most closely guarded secrets, which is how to build a nuclear submarine, which is something they've only shared with one other country before, the UK, um, and hope that that tighter defence bond will be enough to guarantee our security if China ever decides to head into our part of the globe, which, to be to be fair, there is no indication that they will do. Yeah, and I just want to, like, go deeper on this. Like... Please do. Deeper on submarines. Yeah. (laughs) Don't excuse the pun. Like, I don't know, you know, we're pseudo-sovereign nation. Like, you know, we're not an independent state, quote unquote. But is it like too, like, I'm just thinking like, well, why don't we just, you know, rent subs from the US or just contract them to outsource our defense? But, you know, you get into the politics of all that stuff. Basically, the answer is you never know who's going to be the president of the United States. Yeah. I mean, it just seems so wild. Um, 
all this stuff that's happening. On the one hand, we want to protect ourselves and, you know, we'd rather take the side of the US than with China. Uh, but also China, can we also mooch off your growth and be prosperous as well? Yes, that is that is that is exactly the plan. <laughs> That's it. And I think, <laughs> I think on the subs, and even you, you reference the South China Sea, we have a question in the Facebook community from Jessica about what factors should Australia consider when taking a position on the increasing tensions between China and Taiwan? Can you unpack that? Because obviously the South China Sea is a big component of that. Um, I don't have an answer for you. I don't have a very good answer at least. Um, but basically... Taiwan's existence is reliant on a number of people um, believing in a number of very strange fictions, which includes the the policy that the US has sort of been implementing and working around since the 1950s, which is of strategic ambiguity, which is basically we uh, sorry since the 70s is when that when that came into play, uh, which is basically that we oh absolutely China is um, you know China is China. Uh, doesn't include it, it includes all of China, and we don't recognise that there is a country called Taiwan. Uh, but uh, don't test that; otherwise, you never know what might happen. Um, look out, mm. which is basically the way that the entire situation is balanced on, and uh, the Chinese government is considering whether they should test it or not, and. I mean, what Australia does in that scenario is a very small part of, you know, what will end up happening. Um, what we should try and do is just maintain the status quo as much as possible, uh, which I think is, you know, in everyone's best interests uh, and just ideally figure out a way of avoiding us ever to have to, ever having to take sides on that issue. Yeah, I, I would also put like, you know, in terms of, political leadership and whatnot, like if you were a dictator and you like, what's the population of China? Like a billion people? 1.4 billion. Yep. Yeah. So if you were a dictator, alleged dictator, and you had a population of 1.4 billion, would you care what an island in the South Pacific do or say if there's 27 million people there? So I think, is does that come into it? Like, they're such a huge country. Why would they care? Well, they care because they have to operate in a global political environment. They have to go to the United Nations where everybody, you know, you, you don't get to bring 1.4 billion people with you to the United Nations. It's just one representative each country where, you know, theoretically China has as much say as Tuvalu does. Uh, so there's that. They don't want to get, uh, you know, they have to convince that global community and if Australia is there you know, criticising them, squawking on about various things, then they just would rather we shut up about it. But the other thing is that, the, and I think a lot of experts would say, that China cares about what we say because they see us as a very close proxy and ally of the United States and they are trying to warn the United States off being too lippy. Uh, obviously, they do care about what the United States says. They may not care that much about what we say, but what they're trying to do is basically send a message to the United States and the European Union and other countries that we are closely allied with, whereby they're basically saying, you know, you can talk or you can trade. And mm. 
we're going to, you know, put our money where, that, where our mouth is when it comes to Australia. And if anyone else wants to, you know, follow them by criticising our actions in Hong Kong, talking about Taiwan, talking about uh, the mass detention of Uyghurs in Xinjiang or any of these places, um, you know, what's going to happen is you're going to lose some money. So would you say that based on what you just said, China could be using Australia as a little bit of a proxy to make a statement to the US. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Because that's kind of what happens like with, um, you know, I don't want to go there because I'm not experienced, but with the like the proxy war in Syria, you had Russia v the US and yeah. Russians well, arming people allegedly and US arming the militia. Like, yeah, well, so it's the story of the yeah. entire Cold War. It's That's the story of yeah. the Vietnam War. And it's the story of the Korean War and all those so things. So nothing changes, basically. <laughs> well, battles between great powers must be avoided and so they have their arguments through smaller powers um, is the way that, you know, that's basically the way that the world has been since World War Two, and, you know, it's better than the alternative, I suppose. <laughs> so was some of the um, issue earlier this year and I was reading uh, the other day around how there was estimated, and I imagine this is conservative, but there was uh, the economy was kind of hit with a loss of one around $1 billion through the trade issues between Australia and China last year. And I wondered if that might be a conservative view, but what is China making an example out of Australia? And if so, how long will that example go on for? Or are we at the kind of back end of it? Are things improving or are things going to deteriorate further? Oh, well, that's extremely hard to tell. The, the, China was very unlucky in that they just unfortunately picked a bad time to, uh, to teach us a lesson simply because they, you know, stopped buying our coal and they stopped buying our barley, wheat and all that kind of thing. But unfortunately for them, that coincided with a massive jump in the iron ore price. So Australia ended up making more money from China because they certainly didn't cut off, they didn't stop buying our iron ore from us. Australia ended up making more money from China after they brought in all the sanctions than before, simply because the cost of iron ore went up so much. So that was that's unlucky you know they tried they really wanted to send us a message but unfortunately we made even more money which is <laughs> you know i mean you know you can't win them all but total backfire I, yeah well i mean but theoretically at some point the you know the the iron ore price will come back down and then we'll start to you know feel the feel the pinch a little bit and of course you know um looking long term at the ability to sell coal is a uh, is a tricky thing to bet on but no, uh, maybe. I mean, basically, it's, it's up to the United States and China to sort things out. And if, you know, we've seen recently uh, Joe Biden and, and the Chinese President Xi Jinping have a number of conversations, uh, hoping to see if they can settle some differences and work productively on a number of big issues. And if that starts to happen, then maybe Australia might see some of these sanctions eased. But China also doesn't want to see be seen to... Uh, back down because Australia certain hasn't certainly hasn't changed our attitude or our position on any of the things that they don't like about us. So it's tricky. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back right after this. 
If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com, click get help, and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers, and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Okay, we're back. I'm finding this fascinating. Are you, Shell? Yes, I am. Now, I want to know, Matt, politicians come and go. So, we've got Liberal, Labor, different governments. Do each political party that comes into a power in Australia, do you think they actually change the narrative with the relationship with China? Like, because you said K-Rod didn't really have any impact, but Abbott did. Like, if it was flicked around and the parties were reversed, would the same outcomes kind of be there anyway? Look, Australia, like most uh, of our allies, including the United States, most of Europe and that kind of thing, basically doesn't have a difference between the major parties on foreign policy. Essentially, it's aligned. Uh, Foreign policy doesn't really change that much when governments change. There are some notable exceptions to that, but generally, you know, for example, there's no difference between the parties on the subs deal. There's no difference between the party on the parties on their uh, attitude towards Xinjiang, Hong Kong, Taiwan. There's sometimes a bit of a difference in terms of this specific rhetoric, but not really on the policy. Um, I don't think it was the nature of Kevin Rudd or Tony Abbott that made it difference to those things. It was simply other economic factors. The world was just in a certain position at those two t- two times and uh, and that was the main thing, I think. I, I don't and think it makes a huge difference really. Yeah. And, and the reason I kind of thought or asked that was because, you know, if uh, Abbott got the deal across, well, 10 minutes ago when he visited China, they were just shat canning him publicly. So, I don't know if that's just a comment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, look- <laughs> The, the way that China has decided to conduct foreign policy is that they will be very, very, very uh, – they will aggressively uh, hit back when they feel criticised. They don't let anything go and that's made much easier when it's um, someone who isn't currently in the government making comments about them. You know, they, there's nothing, they have nothing to lose criticising Tony Abbott uh, and Tony Abbott, of course, uh, would love it works, you know, makes him seem tough, makes him seem... So, every, everybody wins out of that entire scenario. Uh, and I don't think that it would necessarily change Australia's relationship with China all that much. I don't think um, China cares all that much uh, about what former prime ministers say, but they will hit back on it as a lesson that, you know, nobody can criticise us without being, you know, without copying... And, and they probably us. know it's going to feed into our new cycle anyway. Yeah, totally. Well, that's why they, I mean, China has this, um, uh, an English language newspaper called the Global Times. And the main purpose of the Global Times is basically to write things that will then get republished in the Western media. Uh, Write inflammatory, uh, very rhetorically flourished uh, opinion pieces talking about how, you know, Australia will get what's coming to them and uh, all that kind of stuff. Uh, the point of that is to for it to be reported and re-reported in our media and, you know, so that we can hear their voice in a you know, interesting way. 
but yeah, that's that's the way that they they go around that. Is it intended to stir up fear? Like, what is? And I guess, yeah, like, how, what's the intention behind it? Um. Well, it's in, well, it is intended to stir up fear of criticizing them. You know. Okay. Most people, for most people, criticizing China doesn't matter one way or another. You know. But if you are a person who is a you know executive in a iron ore company, or if you work in many different areas of export business or import business or any of those areas, seeing um, China not take any criticism will play on your mind, you know. When you are deciding what to say at your annual general general meeting um, or what you say in an interview or on a panel chat or on Q&A or any of those things, uh, you're probably going to think twice because China is showing that they, if necessary, will stop buying things from you. There's a question here from the Facebook group from Kayla. What do you think China will be like in 20 years from now, and I want to add in a, an extra bit of thought to your answer, out of all the episodes that you've done on China, if you're listening, what's been the most fascinating thing that you've researched and reported on? And does that couple into the future of the world and China? All right. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. So, this this it's, it's interesting that you put those two things together. One of the most interesting things that I came across um, – that I've, you know, researched and 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 were were able to talk about on the on the series is the spectacular um, rate of growth in China, but also the way that sometimes in some parts of the country and in some parts of the government, local government, uh, you will have spectacular growth simply for the sake of growth that runs well ahead of the needs of that particular community. Um, you know, there's this peculiar, well, no, I don't know that it's necessarily peculiar, but it's an interesting thing that happens within the Chinese Communist Party, which is that people are always looking for advancement. They're looking for, officials are looking to be promoted. And the way that you are promoted is by doing big things, uh, creating a lot of growth real fast. And, or, or, you know, whatever it is that the central government wants, you do it bigger than everybody else. And that means that you... Uh, you know, are likely to get promoted faster. Uh, but also, if your plan is to get promoted every five years, then it doesn't really matter whether your big thing works or pays off. The point is that you start it, you know. And so you see all these massive infrastructure projects being started. Some mayor will be like, oh, I'm going to build a brand new city. And they, you know, buy all the concrete and they buy all the cement and they buy all the, you know, steel and that's great for Australia. And all that stuff, you know, comes in, they start building this city. Uh, by the time they realise that nobody actually wants to live in that city and that it's, you know, built in the middle of nowhere and there's no jobs or industry, uh, the mayor's like, okay, it's all right, I'm off to be, uh, you know, off to be the head of the, you know, I've got the my new planning job. commission. I've got a new job. Whatever, you deal with it. But Good luck, then there's next like mayor. cities that are completely empty. Yeah, there's that. But, even what we've seen now uh, in the last few months since we made the series, once the one of the interesting things that's emerged is that China has set a number of uh, emissions reductions targets, right? And certain mayors have gone, oh, well, we're supposed to cut emissions by this amount by, you know, this year. What I'm going to do is I'm just going to shut the coal-fired power station, bam, and I'm going to shut this one too, bam. See? 
target met, fantastic. Uh, and then suddenly, you know, China suddenly has a, or I'm going to, you know, shut a whole bunch of coal mines or I'm going to build a huge number of wind farms and shut this, you know, gas plant or whatever it is. And then suddenly as the uh, economy was coming out of the pandemic, um, that turned into a massive problem. China wasn't able to generate enough electricity and a lot of, you know, internal Chinese Officials were like, well, it's because the mayor's shut all the coal-fired power stations too too early. You know, but we they did meet ready. their we target. We haven't replaced them yet. They hadn't, well, they met their reduction target, but they hadn't built enough renewables to replace it yet. And so, yeah, you, you know, mind you, not those guys' problem. They've probably moved on to a better job by now. Yeah, one of the fascinating things I realised when I was in China, like we landed at Shanghai Airport. Number one, the sides of the airport, these long terminals where you actually couldn't see the other end with mm. the human eye because they're long and straight. And then you're on this eight-lane motorway from the airport up into Shanghai and you just think the forethought of this infrastructure, at one hand, there's no planning permissions. If the government want it, they just yeah. go, yeah, we'll do that, thanks. And one other thing that I noticed in China when I was there in 20. 17 was there was QR codes everywhere. So like people, street vendors just pay with QR and all that. And I'm thinking, why aren't we using QR codes in Australia? Like this is awesome technology. And anyway, we're here now. But we've got a lot of uh, web browser Careful tabs what open. you wish for. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's yeah. It. And, and also we well, was talking to some local there and they've, you know, got cameras all around the city and it's like, oh, what about privacy? And they're like, what privacy? No one's got yeah, privacy yeah. here. But anyway, we've got a lot of window tabs open, but let's go back to this 20 year thing. Yeah. You asked me about 20 years in the future. Yeah. Um, it's it's, diffi- it's very difficult to say. There's, you know, two groups of thought. One is that China will develop as quickly as they humanly can. They will reach a certain point uh, where due to uh, population factors, basically they will not have enough people of working age to support the number of children and retirees that they have. And so this will be a problem that a lot of other countries experience, which is they start to stagnate when they uh, reach that situation. And so China will develop as much as they can until they hit that that line and then they'll basically stay where they are uh, and then they will be overtaken by India, which that date is further off in the distance for India because India uh, did not have a one-child policy, among other things. Uh, so, yeah, so basically what, what the future looks like for China is that China's heyday will be the 2030s and then it will be the, will be in the same situation we are now, except it's India overtaking China. Uh, so that's one possibility. A lot of people... Uh, think that there will be some collapse of the Chinese Communist Party. A lot of people, it's hard to tell whether that's wishful thinking or not. Um, a lot of people think that, you know, Xi Jinping will be the final uh, Communist President of China. I've not nearly enough knowledge of the situation to say which of those two things are more likely. Uh, but economic factors indicate that China's growth will not abate until... Something happens internally, and what's likely to be what it's likely to be is that demographic change. One of the, I guess, thinking about the twenty-year view of China, but also thinking about well, what's the twenty-year or even five, ten-year outlook with Australia in terms of the relationship? And I know uh, who was it that said the are ah, the drums of war beating? Who was that? Uh, Dutton. Was it? 
So, yeah, Dutton and uh, the Secretary of the Department of Home Affairs, uh, Mike Pizzullo, have been the guys who have been uh, talking like that recently. And so I guess for like an average Australian who is just thinking, oh, that's an interesting comment. What does that mean? And and should I be thinking like, what does that look like for Australia? And I, I hear that and I think I've got zero control over anything of this, but it kind of freaks me out. What are your thoughts when you hear those comments being made by our um, senior leaders in government? Um. I mean, it's hard to tell. You know, you say that you have no control over it. Really, Australia doesn't have a whole bunch of control over it either. You know, as we were saying, as we were discussing earlier, this is a great power struggle and we are not one of the two great powers that are in it. And it's up to the way that that relationship progresses as to how our relationship with China progresses, basically. Um, We are unlikely in the short, medium or even long term to split far from whatever the United States' messaging is on China. Uh, United States is our, not only our, you know, strongest military ally, but, you know, our strongest cultural connection, really. Uh, So it's unlikely that we're going to stray far from them. So, yeah, it's basically up to Joe Biden, Xi Jinping and whoever follow them. We know you're not a uh, an economist or a you know financial analyst. Uh, there's a question here from Tyrion, if that's how I pronounce your name. Uh, best way to get a broad equity exposure to China, uh, along with concerns around disclosure of correct financial reporting. In the Facebook group, when I put out this call for some questions, I made the note that in 2020 alone, Starbucks opened over 600 new stores in China. And which is 50 a month. And if you can think of, if you've got a business and you've got 50 brand new company owned stores that are opening per month, you've got a big operation happening, right? And, you know, I think the same is uh, with KFC in China, Um, all this huge growth. Now, and we won't really get into the weeds of the money side, but one thing Hamish Douglas, who's the CEO billionaire of Magellan, was saying with his portfolio to get exposure into China, they're just getting the, they're just basically buying in companies like Starbucks and whatnot through the American exchange because they can get the decent reporting with the American company that has the Chinese exposure. So you're really getting the Chinese exposure indirectly. Um, so I don't know if you want to comment on anything financial that you've seen in your research on China and the growth and maybe the Evergrande thing. Well, and yeah, he's squirming I mean, and saying, "Yeah, hold my beer." Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the, the question is, I guess, whether you think that Chinese growth is going to continue at the rate that it has, uh, or whether China has, um, you know, a number of bubbles. For example, a property bubble, which is what the Evergrande uh, situation is all about. Has China overcapitalized in, have these Chinese, you know, property developers overcapitalized in the future, made, um, you know, massive, taken out massive, spectacular loans, uh, betting on China's continued growth. Uh, I certainly have absolutely no advice as to whether or not uh, that growth is going to continue. But, you know, obviously there are some, Concerns that there may be some bubbles is is all I would say. <laughs> have you ever taken a, like, because you've spent a lot of time researching China, like, have you ever taken an, an active view or position with your own investing or superannuation or anything like that? Um, no, you know, like- I'm, I'm not, well, uh, I'm, no, I, I wouldn't say that I'm, uh, 
confident enough in my abilities as an investor to to rely on my own analysis that much. But, but I mean, no. you haven't gone to like a financial advisor and say, I want to go to China, baby, take me there. Like, it's the future. The future is now. Like, <laughs> you've just pretty much- No, um, I haven't. Yeah. <laughs> just it does sound ABC exactly like the way that I talk. You? That's Aren't pretty much that? me, yeah. Yeah, we look, we, we don't have a huge amount of, uh, you know, take me to China, baby money mm. <laughs> coming out of the ABC. <laughs> Yeah. Can I go back while we're talking about the ABC? You said at the very beginning, and I wanted to ask at the beginning, uh, about how the ABC aren't allowed in there now. Can you just tell us a bit more about that? There's no well, ABC journalist in China. Yeah, so the ABC for many, many years, decades, had a, you know, a Beijing bureau and a China correspondent. And um, then last year, uh, Bill Bertels, who was the excellent reporter who had been there for several years, um, basically was told that he was a person of interest in a criminal investigation and was interviewed uh, and the ABC and the Department of uh, Foreign Affairs and Trade here in Australia became concerned that he was going to be arrested by Chinese authorities and uh, basically the uh, embassy there basically escorted him home. So, yeah, that's uh, wow. until things change significantly, it's um, unlikely that we're going to have a, much of a presence in China in, yeah, well, you, 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 you know, you live in hope. It's the story. It's the story of the century and it's incredibly frustrating that we struggle so much to report on it. So, you know, fingers crossed. Given that you've spent that much time reporting on China and like, I've listened to some of the episodes and particularly around the uh, Beijing-Taiwan-type fight and, you know, your just factual data and evidence on what's happening, you know, that could be seen as you attacking the regime. Have you ever thought like, oh, I might just check there's not a black car down the street at my house <laughs> or like on a human level, like because, you you know, in, in China, like, you can be a billionaire and say something against the regime and disappear from public life for a couple of weeks. And, you know, in the, the Wuhan incident with the, uh, the doctors in the lab or someone in the hospital, you know, there's been people that have actually disappeared. Like it's real, right? In China? Yeah, in China. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. Um, you know, this, this used to happen when I used to report a lot on Russia as well. Um, you know, people used to raise this with me. My answer is pretty much that uh, there are many, many, many much more well-known and, um, and well, actual China critics, people who are critical of the Chinese regime and aren't just reporting on it, who remain undisappeared. Mm. And if that starts to change, then maybe I'll start looking over my shoulder. But at the moment, I, I'm just- I like that, the I'm undisappeared status. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I just, just want to say, Matt. His, I'm just a dude sitting in his back room in Newcastle. Um, well, and that's what I was going to say, Matt. We make, uh, we make money here on this podcast any way we can. Now, at the moment, what's the time? It's 2.30. Can you um, say goodbye and go check your front door? We've got a little surprise for you. <laughs> Don't think so. <laughs> just follow the nice man. <laughs> oh, goodness. That me. was worth 40 grand, wasn't it, Shell? Oh, yeah. Wow. Um, well, we need to wrap, we need to wrap up. up. But yeah. I have to say, Matt, I've, I have loved so much what you've done, your journalism and the way you present the information is so 
balanced and articulate. So we have, we are really stoked to have you on the show today because I'm just, I, I'm totally fangirling, but I love your work. Thank so you so much. Just want to make it's that clear. <laughs> absolute joy to be here. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's incredibly fun work doing this uh, podcast and I'm, it's a, a pure bonus that people seem to like it, which is great. And, and what's uh, so coming yeah, up more, for you? I was going to say, more, more coming uh, another season of If You're Listening, uh, except not about China. We're going to be looking at um, energy and climate policy in Australia, which uh, doesn't sound thrilling, but then again, neither does the uh, you know diplomatic relationship between China and Australia, and that turned out all right. <laughs> it turned into yeah. a fairly interesting series, so let's see how we go with climate and energy policy in Australia. <laughs> yeah, and I will say for those listening to this, if you're still with us, like we probably didn't solve the world's problems in relation to today's episode. But if you're out there in, you know, your own land doing your own thing and you hadn't actually looked under the hood of what's actually happening in China, mm. I hope this has just been a bit of an introduction for you. And maybe you can go back and listen to Matt's podcast, China, if you're listening, uh, because I just struggle with this whole thing. Like, is this actually real where yeah. they carry on like this? And I mean, yeah, it's just fascinating, isn't it? It sure is. Um, and, and, what I hope that people do is, if they listen to the podcast, uh, see that as a as a first step. You know, uh, you know, we made the podcast. We we you know haven't made any of it since June, and so much has changed as it always does in China since then. You know, we, we'd never heard of most people had never heard of Evergrande um, back then, uh, but you know now that's a you know massive story and and there's been an energy crisis there and supply chain problems and so much has changed so yes start with my podcast but then go on and read as much as you can about china it's a fascinating story story of the century i like to say and just on that have you got the latitude at avc if you wanted to drop in a top up episode about china like you know hey guys haven't been here for 6 months here's a hour of what's been happening it's not generally the way that we do it simply because we kind of move on to other stuff. You know, I'm, I'm halfway through uh, working on the next series at the moment. So, yeah. And uh, is that called sort of- coal if you're burning? <laughs> 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 Look, we haven't quite decided. Well, it, it probably will be called Australia if you're listening. Yeah. Um, but we keep changing the name. Uh, it's not like a, you haven't called out like a politician like ScoMo if you're listening or someone. Uh, it's not generally well. It's not that's not in the style guide. Uh, we oh, didn't do okay. Trump, so <laughs> yeah. uh, Shelley, she. it's the national broadcaster. Oh, okay, of course, of course. <laughs> We're apolitical. <laughs> that's yeah, right. That's right. And, yeah, and what point can I make the joke about you reporting on a communist regime while working at one? <laughs> <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Oh, goodness. I've, you know we started to relax now. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm now literally embarrassing myself, you and everyone. I should say you make a lot more money being in the Chinese Communist Party than you do at the ABC. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, far out. Well, anyway, sorry, we're just shooting the breeze. We'll no let you go. Look out for the new podcast. Um, go and listen to China if you're listening. Matt Bevan, Shell Johnson, thanks so much for hanging out today. Thanks, Glenn. No worries. Thanks a lot. We acknowledge the dark and young people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respect to their elders, past and present. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. 
My Millennial Money supports A21, a charity focused on abolishing slavery and human trafficking all over the world. Check out a21.org.au for more info. If you would like some other giving options or if you're unsure about which charity you can support, head to thelifeyoucansave.org.au. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive, Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, is an authorized representative of Money Sherpa, Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289.